Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Elliot Olds, a developer and writer working in the crypto space with a particular interest in using prediction markets to improve how society makes decisions. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's awesome to be here. Elliot, why don't we give a brief background of why you've made this your, your essential cause or something that you really want to spend time doing? What, what led you to the, uh, on your intellectual journey to, to be here? So just a bit of background about myself. I went to school for computer science and math. After college, I spent about 10 years at Microsoft. And then I did a, a startup in San Francisco for about a year. And I left my job. I did a bunch of independent research into crypto for a couple of years. And now I'm, I'm working on a crypto startup with my friend. As far as how I got into prediction markets. So when I was a, a teenager, I had two pretty significant intellectual interests. The first of them was economics. So I, I spent a lot of time on a philosophy news group, and I encountered David D. Friedman, uh, who's previously appeared on your podcast. And I was just extremely impressed with his reasoning style. And so I read a, a whole bunch of books that he had written and got, got pretty into the economic way of thinking. Around the same time, I also read The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, which is about evolutionary psychology. And this also had a huge impact on uh, how I thought about the world. And so I sort of see prediction markets as sort of a natural consequence of these two worldviews. So to make that a little bit more clear, I think that the economic worldview sort of suggests that prediction markets would be very good at informing political decisions. And the evolutionary psychology worldview suggests that, that humans in general should be expected to be very bad at making good political decisions, uh, especially in a society as large as ours. And then also in, in around 2008, I encountered Robin Hanson's blog. And you've had Robin on the podcast before talking about prediction markets. And I think his work, it sort of represents a fusion of these two worldviews. Let's go deeper on those worlds. Why, uh, if, if you follow the Dawkins uh, line of thinking, why does that, that imply that we are bad at making large-scale political decisions? And how do prediction markets uh, ameliorate or, or fix that? The evolutionary psychology worldview is described in one of Robin Henson's books, The Elephant in the Brain. It implies that a lot of our behavior is about trying to show off and signaling and like especially a lot of our political behavior um, is about which coalition that we want to support and like how we can advocate for, for our interests and the interests of our allies and how we can do this in a way that we sort of pretend is for the good of the group overall. It also uh, suggests that we're very self-deluded about our motives and the extent that we do this and that we often aren't trying to, to seek the truth when it comes to these political issues, but instead we're, we're playing these games of tribal politics. So in general, if you think about what democracy is, it's just taking all these beliefs that we have largely for reasons other than that we're trying to find the truth, and it's just like doing an aggregation of these beliefs. And so 
it just seems like this is is probably a pretty bad way to make decisions if these beliefs aren't generally rooted in what's true. And you're saying that when you put money on the line, you're you're more likely to get over your tribal. Because I, you know, I like I'm a, a hardcore Knicks fan, and I've you know lost a bunch of money betting on the Knicks. <laughs> Maybe and I stopped betting ever since, but it hasn't stopped my endless belief that the Knicks will 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 win <laughs> or will make a comeback. What what is it? Is it the money or what changes decision making? Uh, Yeah, the money is a big part of it. It adds incentives to these decisions. So like if you are trying to figure out if you want to support an increase in the minimum wage, then if it's actually helpful, it isn't going to be that significant of a factor because the probability that your vote will actually affect the outcome is extremely, extremely small. So it'll mostly depend on things like how is this opinion in support of increasing the minimum wage going to influence what your friends think of you or like how you see yourself or the image that you're trying to project, or if you want to align yourself as a supporter of the poor or more of like a supporter of big business or something like that. And so you have these incentives to uh, to pick your opinions based on these other reasons and adding betting into the mix uh, just sort of gives you some real incentives to actually try to be right. You mentioned that you've, you've lost a bunch of money betting on the Knicks. So to move the prices of prediction markets, you and a, and a lot of people like you would have to bet huge amounts of money on the Knicks. And I'm betting that you probably haven't like significantly decreased your net worth and you're not constantly pouring large amounts of money into this. It's, it's probably more like a hobby for you. Is that you'd, accurate? You'd be surprised, Elliot. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. It was a long time ago. <laughs> It happened, but yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. And it was a, it was a small amount. But so, it, yeah. so do you think this is the solution to tribalism writ large, basically, to identity politics, to just sort of hey, put put money on the line, see if you still do it then? Um, I think it would help a lot. I'm not as as sure that if we use prediction markets to determine the decisions we should make as a society that people won't find other things to be tribal about. Perhaps they will, and perhaps we'll still see a lot of tribalism. But I think at least it will funnel the tribalism of people into areas that are less harmful to society. Like instead of having a really bad healthcare system, uh, maybe people will just be tribal about sports or other things like that. Do you agree with the, the you know concept we, we you know both thought about markets eating the world that we want markets to eat the macro world, not sort of the micro community level world, and and similarly or conversely, you want tribes or tribalism to eat the micro world, you know how we engage with our families and and friends, but not the macro world, i.e. healthcare um, or how we think about you know politics writ large. Do one, do you agree with that framing? And then if so, separately, what would be your you know comprehensive solution towards you know making sure we don't incorporate tribalism on a macro scale and sort of have it stay in its lane. I do agree roughly with that idea that as the scale of your your interactions is more local than bringing market dynamics into these situations rubs us the wrong way. And it's, it's probably not as beneficial in those situations. The second part of your question was how we can, can reduce tribalism on this, on the macro scale. Yep. I think if we somehow got people to respect prediction markets and the probabilities that they gave, then it would be pretty hard for people to be worked up about these things. Like if it was common knowledge that the best estimate 
of what would probably happen if we passed this new healthcare law was was given by a prediction market, then uh, that would just sort of inherently reduce tribalism about that sort of issue. And so I see most of the problem is creating this sort of common knowledge where people do start to respect these markets and they start to believe that these are actually the best mechanisms that we do have for estimating the likely outcomes of of various decisions that we can make. So let's get into it. Why are prediction markets so exciting, interesting, and invaluable? So a prediction markets are sort of a meta solution to every other problem. And it's, it's kind of similar to uh, if we were to create general artificial intelligence. Uh, so if we were to do this, then we could use the AI that we created to solve all the other problems that we struggle with. Similarly, um, if we adopt prediction markets um, and use them for all of our important decisions, then it helps us take a good path to solving all the other problems, including the creation of, of a safe artificial intelligence that can maybe solve these problems even more efficiently. Another way to think of it is just if we somehow had a magic oracle and we could present it with any statement and it could tell us the probability of the truth of the statement, how useful would this be? So for instance, we could say, if we, if, if we pass this law, then what is the probability that the crime rate will be less than a certain amount? And if everyone was confident that this magical oracle was giving us the right answers, this seems extremely useful to me. And so, so prediction markets, they're not magic like this uh, hypothetical oracle, but I believe that they approximate this kind of oracle better than any other mechanism uh, that we have. They're basically as close as we can get to this, this situation. It, it seems that the biggest bottlenecks uh, you're preventing sort of mainstream uh, prediction markets are both, are not only technological, but also cultural. To the extent that you accept that framing, can you describe the the bottlenecks on both sides, cultural and and technological? One of the main problems is that people don't believe that prediction markets are actually as accurate as they are. Uh, When you sort of describe using them for political decisions to people, they think it it sounds pretty crazy. They think it just sounds weird. How, How do you think we get over that? Um, so I think establishing a track record for prediction markets. So currently, these markets are pretty regulated, and they've been tried on small scales, but not extensively. I think the more that we can experiment with them, the more we can use them for narrow domains and get people comfortable with the fact that they do very well in these domains. We can sort of expand out from there. It's also possible that we can just come up with some like clever marketing or memes or something. Uh, I feel like there's just a lot of misunderstanding of what they are and how manipulatable they are. So maybe like something like a coin center equivalent for these prediction markets or like Twitter people putting the, the energy that they put into making crypto memes into like prediction market memes. We, we basically need a pomp who's yes. God's work. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the uh, the technical issues. But we just just one second. It is sort of ironic that the main problems prediction markets would be uh, would would solve, i.e., our inability to make good sort of macro decisions, are the exact same problems that prevent us from adopting it in the first place. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's an unfortunate aspect of the situation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and how about the technological ones? So Augur is a prediction market that exists on Ethereum. And currently the UX is pretty bad. And a lot of this is because to avoid these legal restrictions, they had to write the software in a way that it's totally decentralized. And so the, the process of actually using Augur to make a bet is pretty difficult and time consuming. Augur also currently doesn't support conditional prediction markets, which are pretty important for actually using prediction markets to make decisions. So you want to be able to ask questions like, if we pass this law, then will the crime rate be below a certain number? And if we don't pass this certain law, will the crime rate be below a certain number? And then you, you compare the probabilities of those two markets uh, to get a sense of if the law is helpful. And uh, currently, as I said, this, this does not exist on Augur. And I, I don't know of any prediction markets where this exists now. Another problem is that for a lot of these important societal decisions, the, uh, the time frame uh, that you want to evaluate the prediction over is, is pretty long. And so you want to denominate the markets ideally in something that people are okay with holding for, for a long time, for, for multiple years. And so if, if you're holding US dollars for multiple years, uh, you're going to lose a lot in opportunity cost because you could be investing that money in the stock market. So some way to sort of use shares of uh, the S&P 500 or something in prediction markets would probably be pretty helpful. And also like the platforms them, themselves need to be stable over a period of years. And you kind of see... Right now with, with Augur, uh, the first version of their platform is being deprecated. And so, so bets that resolve too far into the future, um, it's sort of unclear what's going to happen with them because they're moving to a new version. And so this is another thing that, that makes it harder to address like some of these big problems. This is not technical exactly, but there's a lot of legal restrictions Existing prediction markets, a lot of them tend to use fake money, which sort of uh, removes a lot of the incentive and a lot of the reason that they, they actually work well. There's also limits on, on how much you can bet on a lot of the existing markets. There's pretty high fees on a lot of the existing ones. And so I think if there was more regulatory friendliness toward these markets, uh, that would solve a lot of the problems. Earlier, we mentioned uh, Futarchy. Can you sort of describe a little bit about Futarchy, but much more about why that would be such a significant improvement for, for what we have now over democracy, basically? So Futarchy in general is taking this idea to the extreme. So instead of just having these prediction markets that we refer to uh, when we're deciding which laws to adopt, we sort of have a system where laws just automatically get adopted depending on the probabilities on these prediction markets. So for instance, someone proposes a new healthcare law. Uh, the politicians, they still have the job of defining the metric under which the law is going to be evaluated. And then you have a market that is saying, if we adopted this law, how will this affect the metrics? If we don't adopt this law, how will this affect the metrics? And what Futarchy does is it automates the adoption of this law after humans have sort of used something like the existing political process to define what we value. 
So that's the gist of how it would work. The reasons that I, I think it would be a lot better and democracy is, as I've alluded to before, just the aggregation of, of beliefs that people hold often for, for reasons of tribalism, of signaling beliefs that they hold for reasons that don't have a lot to do with truth. So I don't think we have a good theoretical reason to expect this to lead to good outcomes in just like a more intuitive way to see that our outcomes probably aren't very good is no matter what political beliefs that you hold, it's probably the case that at least half of the laws that exist right now uh, have been passed by your political opponents or their compromises with your political opponents. So just regardless of your, your political beliefs, if you just imagine what if only good laws could pass um, using whatever definition of good you have, and what if it was almost impossible for bad laws to pass? I think most people would say that this would be a big improvement over the, the status quo. Can you outline the Patrick Friedman uh, uh, argument against democracy, if you, if you have it already? So basically, it's an argument that the incentives in democracy are pretty bad. So the probability that your vote is going to actually affect the outcome is extremely small. And even if your vote did affect an outcome, a lot of laws, they have very distributed costs and very concentrated benefits. So imagine like a company that is is lobbying the government for a favorable regulation and the law is going to benefit the company by $300 million and it's going to cost $600 million. So it's basically taking $2 from each individual and using it to benefit the company. So this company is going to care a lot about if this law passes, um, they're going to do a lot of lobbying. Um, they're going to come up with, with arguments that sound plausible to the casual observer of why this law sh- should pass. Um, but if you look at it from the perspective of any, any individual, it's not worth their time to even, even look into this law or even be aware that it exists because it's only costing them $2. And so a democracy in general, it basically incentivizes this kind of thing to just happen over and over where people use the political system to benefit themselves in a way that sort of distributes the cost over the rest of society. And for each instance of this, it's not worth it for any individual to get too worked up about this. Yeah. uh, Futarchy's slogan is vote on values, bet on beliefs, correct? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The idea of that is that like we still need something like the existing political process to determine the metrics, to determine the outcomes that we want. But once we have the outcomes, then prediction markets can tell us the best way to actually achieve these outcomes. Makes sense. Have you read David Chapman's work? I have read a little bit of his work. I have, I have some friends who are, are very into David Chapman. Yeah, he has a blog, blog post called The Court of Values and, and Bureau of Boringness that I'd encourage listeners to, to read. And he talks about how, uh, you know, sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek post about separating sort of the reality you know, TV-ness of politics with sort of the, what he calls the Bureau of Boringness, like where, you know, decisions actually get made and basically giving the people the ability to either vote in one or the other and trying to encourage people who are more likely to vote in the reality TV, you know, more tribal people to vote in the reality TV version. <laughs> and that's where you sort of get uh, the aesthetics of what you want in a, in a president. Um, and then the, 
the people who are more concerned with the issues themselves to vote in the Bureau of Boringness. That's an interesting perspective. It, it kind of relates to this framing that I have where in the current system, bad political beliefs are sort of like pollution. Uh, so the, the mechanism of democracy, it allows bad beliefs of people to basically negatively impact the rest of society, uh, but people actually don't have to pay for the cost of this. And so it, it, it seems like it would be good to have some sort of mechanism to tax this kind of pollution. And it, it sounds like David Chapman's idea is kind of similar, but instead of taxing this, you're just sort of like funnel this pollution into an area where it is reasonably safe. Got it. It's taxing it because they'd lose money, basically? Uh, yeah. Through the process of, of betting, you lose money if you consistently have, have wrong beliefs and you're rewarded if you have good beliefs. Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, before this podcast, we were talking about a YouTube interview uh, that was about a decade ago, a pretty fascinating interview between Robin Hansen and Mencius Molbug about uh, Futarchy. And Robin Hansen is obviously a you know, big promoter of it, originator of it in some senses. And Mencius Molbug is a, a big critic uh, of it. Can you sort of outline Mencius' uh, uh, criticism as, as you understand it? I'll, I'll start off by saying basically that he says, you know, if you think about chess and, and prediction market for, 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 for chess, that the market has to be both uh, expert or, or people who have, you know, good enough understanding of what chess is, uh, and then also uh, be somewhat disinterested um, and not have, you know, overtly, uh, you know, political motivations. And that, you know, it can work for chess and it can maybe even work for CEO of a company if it's if the prediction market is limited to people who just work at the company, less so people at other companies. But that government is too uh, complicated uh, and complex. And it's not it's like airline safety. Good enough isn't uh, you, you want you want you need perfect. It's, it's kind of binary for something as dangerous as government. Is that is that a what would you add or edit to that description? And, and how, how would you respond to it? I actually think it would be pretty interesting to see what would happen if you had a, a very liquid prediction market and it was subsidized with like a billion dollars to pay like real experts to come in and uh, participate playing against a uh, top grandmaster. I actually think uh, the prediction market would do pretty well. And I guess with respect to the argument that government has to be perfect, I think our current situation is extremely far from perfect and that it's pretty bad in a lot of ways, but like we're all still alive. The world is slowly improving, even though we are extremely far from perfect. So I'm not sure that I agree that there's such a high premium on being like absolutely perfect. But how would you compare it even to Mencius's uh, solution, which would be basically some version of anarcho-capitalism where government is run as a corporation and there's a CEO, there's the sort of chess grandmaster running the show. That would probably be an improvement over democracy, just because you could do it in a way where the incentives were more aligned. But um, I guess my argument is that a liquid enough prediction market uh, would probably play at a grandmaster level. But then more importantly, the prediction market is much, much harder to corrupt. And the downside of having a CEO control a country is a lot higher. What does Mencius believe that you don't? One of the main disagreements is that he thinks prediction markets are more vulnerable uh, to manipulation than I do. 
There's a great part of the video that you mentioned where David Friedman, he sort of addresses this argument. So Mencius would say that if you have like an ex- extremely powerful agent or company who wants to influence an outcome, who can spend a whole bunch of money, they might be more rich and more powerful than the people on the other side. And therefore they can sort of overpower the market and get their way. And the point that David Friedman makes is that the people on the on the other side of the issue actually consists of everyone in the world who likes money. And the reason this is the case is because if the group that's trying to manipulate the market is changing the price from what it actually should be, then they're creating a profit opportunity for anyone to come into the market and push the price back to its real level. And so especially if it's known that some group is is trying to manipulate the market, this is basically just an advertisement that this group is giving away their money. And anyone who likes money, which is basically the rest of the world, can come in and profit off this opportunity. And so this, this argument, it relies on the fact that no single group is actually more powerful than the, the entire rest of the world. And so we should expect that a single group or even like a coalition of groups that are trying to manipulate the market they won't be able to to sustain their manipulation in a contest with everyone else in the world. What do you think about Mencius' suggestion that the prediction market should be limited to experts, basically, that if it's if it's in a company, it should just be for employees or on a government level, maybe it's for people who pass a certain test or something. Do you think that's better or worse than, than sort of a mass open? I think it's worse. I think um, it it creates a political dimension uh, where you need to make the decision of like who's allowed to participate in the in the market. I think it it creates like a an opportunity for corruption and manipulation uh, because of this. And I think just the natural incentives of these markets they do good enough on their own. And that if if you just if you just open these up to everyone, then the true experts, whenever the price deviates from where it should be, these experts can make profits pushing the price back to where it should be. So I don't see why you need to exclude anyone given this mechanism. Right. Going back to your, you you talked earlier about how democracy, you know, it struggles because it aggregates votes from people who hold beliefs largely for reasons other than truth. What's sort of the best explanation you have for why we, you know, we pursue beliefs other than truth? Is it because Truth is that humans are, are locked in zero sum conflict, um, and uh, you know the don't like that truth is is inconvenient or you know hard to come to terms with, or is it because we're so focused on attaining status that we're focused on um, you know pursuing things that improve our relative status r- rather than truth. Um, you know, signaling on sort of micro levels or, or what, what is sort of the best, you know, explanation uh, that you have or that Robin Hanson would have for, for some of the books, some of the uh, ideas he talks about in Elephant of the Brain? Part of it is probably that in our evolutionary environment that the world was more zero-sum. I think the biggest part of it is that just so much of our, our world depended on political games like within the tribe and who you're aligned with, and if you can advocate for your interests, and if you can benefit yourself and, and your, your allies at the expense of your opponents. And uh, in The Elephant in the Brain, Robin Hanson does a good job to sort of show that like a lot of our social behavior is about trying to violate norms 
how to benefit ourselves and our allies in a way that can't be detected. And so like in a hunter-gatherer tribe, if there was some dispute over how to allocate resources, it was it was actually pretty important to be able to, to advocate for yourself and your allies in such a way that you were making arguments that weren't just, I should get a lot of resources because I'm me and I want them. You'd make some arguments about like how the outcome that you want is is the best outcome for the tribe. And you would even believe this this argument yourself because it's a lot easier to convince other people if if you sincerely believe something. And so I think the bulk of the explanation is that this sort of tribal politics was just extremely important um, in the environment that we evolved. And just like a large part of our, our brains are devoted to these conflicts. If, if Glenn Wall was in this discussion with his ideas of liquid democracy, what, what might he be saying? So actually, I don't know uh, that much about his opinions on on prediction markets, uh, except that I know that he he isn't really a fan of them. With respect to liquid democracy, I haven't actually heard that much of his advocating of this idea. I have heard a lot of people in the cryptocurrency space advocating it. Um, and I do think it has some benefits over regular democracy. I mean, it, it basically reduces the cost of voting for something reasonable. And one of the main problems with democracy is just that the cost to vote is, is a lot higher than, than any benefit uh, that you would get from it. So it, it, it seems like somewhat of an improvement over strict democracy, except um, I think it, it still suffers from the same issue where even though the incentives are slightly better, you still don't have an incentive to delegate your vote to the right people because that extra vote that you're giving to whoever you're giving it to, uh, the chance that this is actually going to influence the outcome is, is extremely small. So it seems like it's still not giving enough incentive for holding the right beliefs. Can you talk about the current state of prediction markets today? Like even the last few years, you know, what have we proven or what have we learned or, or where are we right now in its development and adoption? Uh, yeah. So we've seen that there's sort of a lot of niche interest, uh, especially from like the crypto community for the idea of prediction markets. I think we've seen that there's not huge demand from users of prediction markets. If you look at the at the usage of Augur, it is not that high. And some of this is is because the UX isn't very good. But like you can imagine that if if people just like really, really wanted to participate in these markets, that they might do more to, to sort of power through the bad UX. This sort of brings up an issue that like prediction markets, they're more accurate, the more liquid they are, and the more the more people are, are paying attention to them and, and trading on them. And so you could say that the relative low demand of users for these ex- existing markets, it's sort of a bad sign for, um, for using them more widely. But the cool thing about prediction markets is that you can actually subsidize them by sort of like indiscriminately sprinkling money into a prediction market. And this increases the expected return of everyone who participates in it. And uh, it it turns it from a zero-sum situation into a positive-sum situation for everyone who's, who's participating. So like, even though like currently it's not really worth their while for experts to come into these auger markets and spend a lot of time trading on them just because the interest from other people isn't there. Um, if, if you poured in a billion dollars 
uh, to some like super important question, uh, you could essentially buy liquidity and still get the benefits of a, a highly liquid prediction market. It is interesting to me that there hasn't been you know similar sort of ICO bubble or even just you know a ton of adoption in prediction markets. Given that people love to gamble, people love to bet. Um, it's very human instinct. What, what do you think the killer app is going to be, or sort of the thing that makes prediction markets become mainstream? So it could be just a case of like UX and friction. I um, mean, that like once you reduce that enough, then these markets get more liquid and the liquidity sort of attracts more people. Because uh, if, if you go to these markets now and you see the, the low liquidity, you're less likely to participate in them. So it's, 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 it's kind of a network effect issue. And maybe if the UX improves enough, then the network effect can just get rolling more. But um, I'm actually not that confident that there's going to be just a lot of like user demand to participate in these things um, without a subsidy. And so I think we don't actually need that. I think as long as we can subsidize markets and uh, pay for liquidity, that this is good enough. Like even if people don't inherently want to use them, if if we just increase the reward until they do want to use them, I think this is a, a reasonable solution. To what extent is the the importance of crypto in prediction markets defined by the idea that the type of people who are likely to pursue crypto are also likely to pursue prediction markets or that decentralization really is a legal maneuver or that decentralization has some other benefit to prediction market platforms versus, or is it something else? What, what, what determines crypto's influence uh, on prediction markets you know, short and long term? I see it as mostly a legal thing that that crypto basically allows these markets to be completely unrestricted, like impossible to shut down or not completely impossible, but much more difficult Uh, that you can have markets with no limits on like how much you can invest, how much profit you can make. Um, I think for people who who are interested in prediction markets, this seems like the easiest path to getting liquid prediction markets because it, it doesn't seem like there's that much progress on the legal aspect. Yeah, so I think it's it's mostly a legal thing. And so how are you thinking about where you can have the biggest impact or where anyone could have the biggest impact if they're uh said hey, their their unique goal is to is to make prediction markets mainstream? So for myself, I uh have a project that I've been thinking about. Um, so the the project would basically be a charity where uh, people can donate to make specific markets more accurate. So for instance, I would set up a website. It would be using Augur markets in the background. There would be like maybe 10 questions, which I thought um, were particularly interesting for like decisions that are important to society. Uh, so for instance, questions could be about AI timelines, like how close we are to general artificial intelligence. They could be about like uh, the effects of Brexit, if it's going to increase or decrease the GDP of the UK, uh, that sort of thing. And then people who are interested in having more accurate predictions for these questions could donate money in such a way that uh, the money would sort of be, be randomly distributed uh, to actually attract experts. And so this is sort of addressing the the problem that I just talked about where 
there's not a lot of native interest for people just to participate in unsubsidized markets, but there are a lot of, of groups who care about these big questions. And it's possible that that people might be willing to donate. So I'm, I'm actually going to be using this as my project in about a month at the uh, ETH Berlin Ethereum hackathon. Yeah, so this is uh, one idea. Some other ideas are, like I mentioned earlier, uh, having some sort of coin center or something of that nature or prediction markets. Uh, there's also some projects that are happening to use prediction markets in very narrow domains where it's easier to get regulatory approval. Uh, there's a project uh, to use them to predict if scientific studies are going to replicate. So I think narrow projects like this, which can be used to, to sort of demonstrate to people that these things are, are actually pretty accurate, I think there's some opportunity there. In general, just like doing research on the meta question of how we actually get from here to a world where prediction markets are more widely used. Like there's some options, which, which I just talked about, but I think this is a pretty complicated problem and just like brainstorming more options like that and actually, actually evaluating the ROI on these sort of ideas is, is something that people haven't done enough. A couple more ideas. Just the idea that like betting on beliefs is something that should be expected and like is maybe cool or like something that you sort of need to do to be taken seriously in, in certain groups. Um, I think there's some opportunity there. Uh, so for instance, a lot of the economists at George Mason University, uh, they sort of have a culture among themselves of making bets and betting on their beliefs. Um, and I think if, if people who are into these sort of ideas tried to push on cultivating a culture where if you refused to bet on your beliefs, then it's a good reason to take your ideas less seriously. That's something that could have an effect. And then also just like experimenting on governance of blockchains. So for instance, you can, you can try Futarchy on Aragon or some other, some other blockchain and just like see what are the problems, uh, how well it works. I think uh, blockchains in general provide a pretty good uh, experimental ecosystem to try some of these ideas. Biology once had this quote, I think, that uh, what, what crypto networks enable is sort of like lean startup uh, MVP approach applied to economics. Do you see it as accurate? Some economists sort of bristle at that, but... I do agree with that. I think I think in general, like the more experimentation that that we can do, that's generally good. I'm a big fan of Patry Friedman as well and his ideas about like experimenting with governance systems in general. It's, it, one of the ideas that is also associated with that we, we've talked about and uh, sharing is, is markets eat the world or eating the world. Talk, talk a little bit about markets eat the world concept and, and why that's important for you. Uh, so Naval has a, a great tweet storm about uh, this idea of uh, markets eating the world and how, how crypto enables this. So the way that he, he presents it, it's, it's basically like each of these crypto networks establishes a market for whatever they're paying for. And this allows uh, these markets or these crypto systems to flourish where like if you had a network without these incentives, uh, then maybe it couldn't really work as well. This is an important idea, but where I see the sort of market competition and crypto dynamic being 
being more important is market competition between two versions of the same protocol. So imagine if Facebook was built on some sort of crypto protocol. So what this would allow is that we could collectively fork to the best version of a social network. And the, the only barrier to doing that would just be like the coordination problem, like trying to get everyone to have to switch over at the same time. And so just uh, the idea that these crypto protocols can fork and there can be competition between them in terms of like who moves to which one or the prices of the, the underlying token this seems extremely valuable to me and like it can kind of lead to a situation where we can actually get like the best version of any protocol that we might want to use. Before we get into some of your other thinking beyond prediction markets, I just want to bring up a couple of the, uh, couple of the, what detractors often bring up just devil's advocate points. One, for example, is why aren't experts or even super forecasters better than prediction markets? Uh, the main response is just like, if you look at the actual track record, prediction markets tend to do better uh, than experts. You could say that there are some experts that do have a better track record. And like in any any system where you have thousands of potential experts, you'll have some just, just through normal variants who will look like they're better uh, than prediction markets. But there's also like a pretty strong theoretical reason why you can't really have an expert or a group of experts consistently outperform the prediction market. Um, and that reason is that like if there was such a group, then people could just use the opinions of these experts to trade on the prediction market. And through this process, uh, they would pull the predictions of the prediction market toward the expert until they were equal and there wasn't any profit opportunity. So, so that's sort of the theoretical reason why... Uh, you couldn't really have like a sustained group of experts that's that's actually better uh, than prediction markets. Um, another reason is just it introduces a political question of like, who are the experts that we're actually going to put in charge? Uh, this is something that it's like easy for people to, to argue about. And it's easy for people to rationalize like why their preferred experts are the real experts. And these other experts um, aren't as good. And it just sort of, uh, it, it creates an avenue for this tribalism to sort of get back into these these important decisions that we're like trying to push it away from. You know, we, we have this concept of insider trading, which I think is trying to equalize markets in the sense of, you know, anyone who has a, you know privileged information shouldn't be allowed to bet or use that information to bet. Of course, the prediction markets, you know, we'd also have asymmetric information across a number of fronts and you can make a lot of money off that. Would there be insider trading in prediction markets? Or do you think that insider trading is kind of a, a dumb or counterintuitive law and we should change that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think there would definitely be insider trading. There would be people who have non-public information who use this information to, to change the prices of the markets. I do tend to think that if you just care about the accuracy of the markets, then you want to allow this because the alternative of just not being able to trade on this information means that uh, the market is less accurate. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the laws for insider trading are more about fairness and like not wanting to allow uh, some traders to take advantage of other traders. But if we're just talking about trying to get the most accurate estimates that we can, then I think it doesn't really make sense to try to restrict insider trading. There's also this idea of uh, you're trying to quantify the unquantifiable and prediction markets, you know, force everything to be legible. We'll get into ideas markets in a second, but try to, you know, really quantify what 
when in some ways hasn't been quantified. How would you talk about the challenges there? And would you say that, you know, prediction markets are mostly for macro problems, not really for, you know, what would make me most happy on my individual level or at a micro level? So I think happiness in general uh, seems possibly hard to measure accurately, uh, but I don't think the relevant distinction is between like macro and micro. You can think of macro things that we we kind of want to be able to measure, but are are very hard. So like it is easy to measure like the GDP of a country and ask questions to a prediction market that say like, if we do this, what will happen to the GDP? But a GDP is actually not the ideal metric. We actually, I would love to be able to use something like the overall well-being of like everyone in the country, but uh, that's extremely hard to measure. So similarly, like as an individual, there are metrics that are easy to measure that would, would probably be useful. So I think, yeah, it's, it's not so much macro versus micro, but just like, is there some sort of proxy that's close enough to what you want to measure? And I think this is uh, kind of a, a hard problem in some cases. Um, but I think like, especially for the macro case that our current system is so bad at this that even a metric that doesn't perfectly capture the nuances of what we want can still be a lot better than our, our current system, which uh, like passes laws that have unintended consequences and cause like a lot of economic destruction. So even even if there is some issue here, you have to compare it to the, the current system. Well, if you think that they're more just as likely to work micro with, as, as they are macro, would that then imply that you know, my other interest, of course, income share agreements, that I'd be better off, you know, outsourcing some decisions in my personal life to sort of a, the crowd, basically, and that they, the, their, you know, combined, you know, bets would yield better outcomes for a certain subset of decisions than, than I would personally. And if yes, what's a framework for thinking about which decisions the crowd should make versus which decisions I should make, which types of decisions? Uh, this would work if you were somehow able to to create a market with enough liquidity. Uh, so probably people aren't going to be inherently interested in like lots of decisions in your life. Um, so you would sort of have to have to subsidize the market uh, to get people to be interested. And this uh, this could be pretty expensive. This is a reason why why prediction markets would work better in a more macro context because like if you're trying to decide if Brexit should happen, the consequences of this decision are like so huge that spending a billion dollars on, on subsidizing a market is, is probably worthwhile. You, you just sort of have to think about like how much of the relevant information is actually leg- legible to the people who would be betting on this market and how impactful is this decision and is, is the cost of subsidizing a prediction market on this thing that people might not inherently be interested in. Is it worth getting better information? And, and obviously you want to ideally have some sense of like how good you are at evaluating this type of thing. So, I mean, would that imply that someone like um, a celebrity who people are interested in, I'm trying to think of like Jennifer Aniston, if you, if you put a prediction market, you know, her verse, uh, would she, she marry Brad Pitt or some other guy? I can't, I, I can't remember <laughs> uh, who else. Mm-hmm. And then that would lead to a better, um, quality of life or something maybe that was a bit more measurable. I don't know that, that you could imagine that working and being effective, effective, or how would you think about that? 
Um, so I think get over that problem, the bootstrap problem. For that particular example, um, I can think of some reasons why it might not be that effective. Uh, if you think that like celebrities have, or if, if, if you think that like we don't actually know them that well and they have like public personas that are, are pretty different from how they actually are, then that would be a reason um, why that, that sort of market wouldn't work out that well. Uh, there's also just like Jennifer Aniston would sort of have, have to manage like the the reputational fallout from doing something like this because there are aspects of life where if you if you sort of use a market or like try to be too economic about it, it signals to people maybe some things that you, you don't want to signal. But I think like if if you don't care about that and if if we believe that uh, the people participating in the market actually have a good sense of like what Jennifer Aniston is like and what what Brad Pitt is like and the other other possible suitors that she has. Uh, this this probably would be pretty effective. Um, I'm just not sure how, how true that is. How do you compare prediction markets to ideas markets? And maybe you can outline a little bit of ideas markets. It's basically like prediction markets in that you can invest in tokens that represent an idea. But it's unlike prediction markets in that the value of these these tokens, uh, it never actually resolves based on a real world event. So uh, the value is basically purely speculative. And it's less clear that the popularity of these tokens will be tied to the truth of an idea. The mechanism behind this is that uh, the value of, of the token in the future will be what other people will pay for the token in the future. And that's that's always how you evaluate the value of these tokens since they never resolve. So it's just a question of how much is, is this value going to correspond to truth and how much is like the popularity of an idea? How much does that correspond to the truth? And my personal opinion is that uh, the ability for the tokens in prediction markets to actually resolve um, I think that is very powerful, and I'm I'm a bit skeptical that the most popular ideas are going to be things that people agree are true. I also think it's it's maybe easier for people to object uh, to ideas that are are popular on ideas markets, um, especially because they currently don't have uh, the same sort of track record as as prediction markets of like actually being accurate. So you can imagine if you do some experiments with this. And your favorite ideas are like at the top and you, you go around telling people like, Hey, like I'm right because this ideas market has my ideas at the top. It seems like people will have a lot more legitimate reasons to say, uh, you're not actually right. This is just a market of popularity. So, uh, so why should I listen to you? I do think the idea is, is pretty interesting and I, I look forward to seeing if it does actually work, but I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical for those reasons. Let's um, zoom a bit, out, a bit out to some of the ideas you've written about. One of the things you've written about is uh, black and white thinking in crypto. And you, even in that interview we were talking earlier between Molbug and Hansen, you know, Molbug stops at one point and says, I'm, I'm reasoning deductively, you are reasoning inductively. And, and you, you say that there are some problems with, with reasoning deductively. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about black and white thinking and, and deductive versus inductive reasoning. My take on it is that this is sort of like the default mode of reasoning that comes most naturally to humans. If you read the ancient philosophers, this is sort of like how they would reason all the time. The general style is that you you have some premises that seem like self-evidently true to you based on your, 
your intuition. And then you sort of use these to reason deductively to this like more complicated broader theory. And then you just use these conclusions and apply them to the world. And uh, people who, who reason like this are often extremely confident about their conclusions. And my belief on this is that when you're reasoning about like how the world actually works, there's a lot of models that perhaps apply to some degree. And when you reason using this style, you're coming up with a model and it's ignoring a lot of aspects of reality. You're sort of implicitly saying, for this issue, the aspect of reality that exists in my model is the important one. Everything else is irrelevant. So I'm just going to ignore everything else. And this is how the world works. And so there's actually been some research from Phil Tetlock with his work on super predictors and like what kind of people are best able to understand the world and make predictions about it. Um, and he, he relies on this distinction between foxes and hedgehogs, where a hedgehog is this kind of person who like has a big idea. They have a model that they really like, and they, they basically think it explains everything. And, and a fox is like, they have a lot of models, and they, they realize that like, they don't completely capture reality. And it's, it's hard to know which one is the most relevant in certain situations. And like, as they gain information, they're, they're constantly adjusting how much weight to give to each, each of these models. And my reading of the evidence is that uh, people with this style of thinking just do a lot better in predicting what's going to happen and, and how the world works. And I think uh, this sort of deductive style of reasoning is pretty interesting because Bitcoin sort of consists of a lot of people with ideologies that sort of use this style of reasoning. So for instance, uh, Austrian economics is a big one where people, they basically begin from the premise that humans act. And then uh, just from that premise and, and maybe a couple others, um, they derive their whole system of economics. Another system of, of thought that's also popular among Bitcoiners is uh, natural rights libertarianism, uh, where you start with the intuitive premise that it's it's always wrong to initiate force against someone else. And then you deductively derive an entire moral theory based on this. And even uh, cryptography and math in general sort of uses this style of thinking where you sort of have some premises and then you deductively derive a bunch of, of conclusions from these premises. And I think in general, this kind of thought, it's just, it's just too hard when you do this to know that that the model that you're working with is is capturing the only relevant things about reality and that the things that you're ignoring can actually be completely ignored. Couldn't you say something similar about how the opposite approach uh, has too much confidence from the past that, hey, we can look at how things have operated, you know, sort of the neoclassical economics approach, look, look at, you know, we can tweak this here, tweak this there, and because it's worked in the past, it'll work similarly? It doesn't imply too much confidence in sort of their own you know, models. I think you can make that error on the other side as well. And I think overconfidence is is, is a pretty common flaw in a lot of human thinking. Um, and I do think that in the in the case of like neoclassical economics, um, I think they're actually making this, the same kind of errors uh, in some situations. So I wouldn't I wouldn't classify them as like foxes who like have have a bunch of different models and assign weights to them and are sort of highly uncertain of like how much each of the models is actually representing reality. 
So one example of that is immigration. So like if you talk to some economists about this, their models will show that like it's really good to have like high amounts of immigration because it sort of lets people sort of fill the roles that result in in the highest economic efficiency. And according to their models, it does seem like a good thing. But then from like evolutionary psychology, uh, we also have, have some models that humans are very tribalistic. And like if you have a group of people that the residents of the country like regard as, as the outgroup, and a lot of them uh, come into the country, it will probably cause some tensions. And uh, this sort of thing just, it doesn't really exist like in the models uh, that economists use. And so I think you, you sort of need to be aware that there are these, these other factors at play. And I think you're right that like mainstream economists can make the same mistake in sort of relying too heavily on their models. The other thing you've thought a lot about is, is governance in crypto. Why don't you outline the, uh, or summarize the crux of, of the two or more different uh, approaches within, within governance crypto and, and which one you're more sympathetic to? There's a group of people who are pretty strongly in favor of on-chain government governance. And like uh, these people usually have some sort of voting scheme in which users of the network ex- express their preferences. Um, and then the network sort of takes those preferences and automatically adjusts based on, on some hard-coded rules in the network. Um, and then you have a more off-chain governance, which is more based on hard forks. And like if there's a new version of the network, then you, you try, to, try to convince people to adopt it. You do a fork, you, you hope, hope everyone moves over. Um, it's possible that if, if the fork isn't good, then people will, will stay on the old fork. So from my perspective, on-chain governance suffers from a lot of the same problems as democracy. The incentives aren't, aren't actually there for people to go through the trouble of voting. Um, it's only if you're like a super whale and you hold like a huge amount of tokens, uh, will your vote actually make that much of a difference. So uh, if you're just a regular user, you don't really have that much incentive to pay attention or to vote. Whereas with hard forks, like the the fork that you choose has a much, much more direct connection to your experience and like to the benefit that you'll you'll be getting. So I sort of see these on-chain voting systems as sort of like trying to to fit traditional styles of governance um, onto this new paradigm. And I see like what makes crypto like extremely powerful is is this ability to fork and sort of like have have people vote with their feet on which network they want to use. Um, and so I'm I'm pretty interested in in in, in systems that try to harness this ability. Um, so so currently there are uh, some problems with with hard forks. They're currently like pretty messy. They cause brand confusion. It's it's actually hard to know like what fork other people actually prefer. Uh, you sort of want to follow the fork that everyone else prefers. And I think there's there's a lot of work that that can be done to improve the infrastructure of forking so that some of these problems are more minimized and that we can get the benefits of hard forks, especially that the incentives are better and and try to minimize some of the downsides. That's a direction that I, I would like to see people go more towards in crypto governance. Uh, but currently, as I said, I see a lot of people that they seem to just take it for granted that democracy is good. Uh, they don't seem to really engage with these these problems that I've talked about. And you can even see this 
playing out with a lot of the the on-chain votes uh, that have happened in some of these other systems. Uh, you see, in general, that the participation um, is extremely low. We're in about, is it called the Amman Agreement Theorem? Uh, yeah, I got pretty interested in this after reading a blog post by Scott Aronson and also just like spending so much time in the, the crypto community and seeing seeing all the tribalism that exists there. Uh, the high level of, of the theorem is that if you have two people who are both rational, um, which in this context, it basically means that when they get new evidence, they, they update their beliefs to the right degree. And if these people are also truth-seeking and that they're like actually trying to, to figure out uh, the truth of the matter instead of just like trying to get their way or something like that. Um, so if you have two people who are both rational and truth-seeking, then after some discussion, they should never be in a situation where, where they don't agree. And like the theorem even implies something even stronger is that during their discussion, um, you shouldn't be able to predict how the movement of their beliefs is going to look based on where they started out. Um, so if you imagine like a, a Democrat and a Republican arguing over some issue, um, even if you assume that they are eventually going to agree, what you would imagine for for actual humans is that they'll sort of like slowly and begrudgingly uh, inch closer and closer together until they agree with each other. But Alman's agreement theorem says that if these people are actually truth-seeking and rational, they should just as often switch onto the other side of each other on an issue as they remain on their own side. So like you would imagine like the Republican suddenly changing over and being like more toward the position that the Democrat was originally arguing for. And it's, it's, it's the sort of random walk that you should expect if people are actually rational and truth seeking. I mean, I think the, uh, the main takeaway from this, if you like do all the math and like understand all the arguments behind this um, is just like how far from this that actual discussions are. And I think this, like, if you look at, yeah, like how people actually behave in arguments, I think the conclusion is that we're all like either very irrational or like very non-truth-seeking. I think the, the second explanation actually carries more of the weight that like when we have these, uh, these discussions, we're not actually trying to find truth. Um, we're, we're basically just trying to win. This is something that like people sort of intellectually understand uh, like this, this doesn't sound too mind blowing. Like people will say, like, yeah, of course, humans humans are biased, but I think it's like extremely hard to internalize uh, the degree to which this applies to each of us, and that thinking a lot about the Elman Agreement theorem is is helpful for internalizing uh, this message. And uh, one thought experiment that I like uh, to do to sort of drive this home is that, um, or one excuse that people will come up with when I start talking about this is they'll say like, oh, but I have, have more experience than this person. Or like, I, I actually am more rational than this particular person. Or I'm actually less biased than this particular person. So it, so it is appropriate for me in this case to not update my beliefs more toward theirs. But unless you think you're the most rational and, and most truth-seeking person in the world, you should be able to, uh, to point out someone else who you think is at least as rational and truth-seeking as you and like at least as experienced as you in some topic. And if you disagree with someone on that topic, the pattern of your beliefs uh, should should look like what we would expect in the Alman Agreement Theorem. 
but I believe it's it's extremely hard for people to actually say like this specific person is probably more truth seeking than me and more rational than me or both. And if I start discussing with this person, then I actually will update in this in this way that the element agreement theorem says I should. So that's that's sort of an overview of uh, the theorem and and why I think um, it has pretty important implications. But isn't that sort of a an example of markets making the problem even worse? Like you know, crypto is markets eat the world, but it's also even more tribal. How do you explain that? Or am I? Do you dispute the premise? Can you elaborate on? Yes, the the monetary incentive there is encouraging people to be more tribal. Where you might think that markets would uh, you know make make people less tribal, more um, rational, or more sober. I guess. I think when it comes to betting on a a specific claim, I see that as different than just operating is just like a general member of the crypto community. And like a lot of it is also uh, in crypto, a lot of the game is just meme warfare. We're still very early and people are are sort of trying to to meme their, their favorite coin like into the dominant position. And this sort of meme battle sort of rewards uh, extremely high confidence in like sending a, a very non-nuanced message. But I think you do have a point in that like if you take a hardcore ETH maximalist and let's say they have like all their money in ETH and there is like a, a reasonable chance that Bitcoin is actually going to be the dominant crypto, you would expect them to have a reasonable incentive to actually acknowledge they might be wrong and to actually diversify into Bitcoin a little bit. Another thing you've, you've thought about, and maybe close here, is, is why a single AI might take over the world. <laughs> uh, wh- why don't you talk a little bit about that? It, it kind of relates to a, a longstanding debate between Robin Hansen and Eliezer Yudkowsky. So Robin Hansen, he tends to think it's, it's a lot more likely that the AI revolution will sort of be a broad revolution in which the the entire world will just sort of grow roughly together um, until the entire world is is a lot more rich. Uh, The basic argument for this is that if you look at previous step changes in the growth of the economy, um, so for humans, uh, there have have been two other of these, uh, which Robin Hanson has talked a lot about. Uh, First one was the agricultural revolution. Second one was the industrial revolution. Uh, So Robin, uh, he might ask like, why is it that the first person to invent agriculture didn't take over the world? Um, And he would also ask, why is it that the first person to invent industry didn't take over the world if these new paradigms were so powerful? And so he would say, we have some reasons for this. And the same reasons are going to apply when someone uh, creates general artificial intelligence, that it will be roughly equally as hard for the first mover to just take over the world without like everyone else sort of being able to, to keep pace. A pretty strong argument against this, which I don't hear talked about a lot, is that the incentives for different humans in the agricultural revolution and uh, the industrial revolution were not to make the first person to come up with the technology or the first group of people to come up with the technology of the rulers of the world. There's a lot of misalignment between the components or the incentives of the components of these groups. 
So for instance, if you're working on the first farm that has ever existed um, and you're helping the other uh, group who, who came up with farming, it's possibly in your interest to go start your own farm, to, uh, to sell information about like how to farm to uh, other people. Like in general, you want to increase your own power, not really the, the power and wealth of the people who, who came up with agriculture. But in the case of an artificial intelligence, it's a lot more plausible that like the components of this AI will all be aligned. Like one architecture that seems plausible is the AI just makes exact copies of itself and spreads to a lot of the computational resources of the world. And if these are exact copies, the, the goals of all these copies will be exactly the same. Um, and so uh, this incentive to defect and reduce the power of these agents overall uh, is is basically not there, and I think like this is one of the uh, the most powerful arguments of why um, we should be somewhat concerned that it could be different this time um, after we create a general artificial intelligence. On that note, I want to uh, I want to close the, the podcast, uh, Elliot. This has been a fantastic episode for people who want to learn learn more. Uh, check out Elliot on Twitter at uh, Elliot uh, underscore Olds. Uh, and anything else you want to leave our audience with? I think that's it. Uh, appreciate you having me on. All right. Uh, thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 